today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Imagine Nats. At Imagine Nats, you'll find modern sewing patterns that include clever details and practical techniques, plus fabrics for your garment sewing needs. Check the Imagine Nats blog daily for creative inspiration. Find it all at imaginenats.com. Welcome to episode 57 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, I'm bringing you a show that's a little bit different from past episodes. I've been an Etsy seller since July of 2005, when Etsy was still in its infancy. Over the past 10 years, I've ridden each wave of change to the site and experienced how those changes have affected the seller community. There's an ongoing tension as an Etsy seller, between the individual and the marketplace. What do we give up and what do we gain by being a part of Etsy? Over the last few years, a significant portion of the seller community has really come to question some of Etsy's decisions, including allowing sellers to work with manufacturing partners and handling intellectual intellectual property violations, among other issues. There have been mistakes, There have been misunderstandings. To me, one way to work on resolving some of the mistrust that now exists is to sit down together and talk. And that's my goal with this podcast. My guests today are Heather Jassy, the Senior Vice President of Members and Community at Etsy, and Stephanie Schacht, the Head of Responsible Seller Growth. Heather Jassy came to Etsy in 2010. She grew up in South Georgia and has an undergraduate degree in English and a master's degree in psychology. She had a therapy and consulting practice before shifting to work in the tech world, first at Lockers and then Etsy. Heather is an avid reader of the Etsy forums and of blogs that talk about Etsy. She lives with her husband and daughter in Hudson, New York. Heather Jassy, welcome. Hi, Abby. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So, Heather, do you want to tell us in just a few words what your responsibilities at Etsy entail? Sure. So I, um, as you mentioned, I've, I've been at Etsy for about four years, and I lead the organizations that work directly with the Etsy community. So um, that would be member operations, which is customer support and trust and safety and the forums. And then seller growth, which is uh, seller business education, Etsy success, Etsy teams, and also the teams like uh, Stephanie's that work on programs that help our sellers um, scale in responsible ways. Okay, terrific. Stephanie Schacht oversees the vetting of Etsy sellers who want to work with manufacturing partners. She's a sociologist with a PhD from Princeton, and she triple majored undergrad at Vanderbilt in economics, English, and East Asian studies. Prior to Etsy, Stephanie worked in the local food movement and has a keen interest in community and sustainability. She lives in Brooklyn. Stephanie Schacht, welcome. Thank you so much, Abby. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And Stephanie, do you want to tell us in a few words what you do at Etsy? Yes, so I lead the responsible seller growth team, um, as you mentioned, and we work with sellers that are that are doing outside manufacturing. We review their applications for outside manufacturing and try to support them if that's a choice they want to make for their business. 
All right, super. So um, we're going to dive right in and we're going to begin um, by talking about Etsy as a marketplace for handmade goods. So that was kind of the origin of Etsy. Um, and then in October of 2013, you redefined what was allowed on the site. And Heather, I know you were involved in creating the new set of guidelines. And sellers can now use manufacturing partners to help produce their goods as long as they apply and get Etsy's approval. One of the questions I think many sellers have is why Etsy doesn't differentiate between those shops that are truly handmade and those that are using manufacturing partners. I'm sure you've thought of this. And I wonder if you could explain why you decided against doing that. Well, I think about this topic all the time, and I've been thinking about it for years. Um, so I'll try to condense my answer a little bit. Um, but yes, I was really involved with the policy changes, as was Stephanie. So uh, back in the beginning of 2013, I hired Stephanie, who, as you mentioned, is a sociologist. And we brought her in to really do an in-depth study of manufacturing, making, seller business growth, to really inform how we'd be shaping our policies. They really got into a place where they caused a lot of confusion for our seller community. So we we set about changing those. Um, Stephanie spent months interviewing sellers. She looked at trends in small-scale manufacturing. And what she also did was study the wholesale applications to learn about how sellers were already growing their businesses in responsible ways. So as far as the category question goes, I have a ton to say about that, um, because the question really gets at the complexity around the definition of handmade, which I know we've been talking about on Etsy for years. Um, we thought about it a lot. In fact, when we first started working on our policy changes back in 2013, we assumed we'd end up creating separate categories, but we really changed our minds once we started looking at how it would actually play out. So there are a few reasons we haven't done this. Um, first of all, it's surprisingly hard to figure out where to draw the line. This would be really easy if everyone either made everything completely by hand and not with machines, or they completely outsourced production work. That would be a very clear line. However, the reality is not that simple. So here are some examples of folks who apply for manufacturing assistance. Designers who have their items 3D printed, jewelers who have their original waxes cast into metal, painters who have prints of their painted paintings printed on shower curtains or pillows, putting all of those items under the same label of manufacture just really doesn't get at the full story of what's happening there. Um, but I do think this question also gets at some much larger questions about where to draw the line in the marketplace. My sense is that while sellers sometimes talk about, uh, or when sometimes sellers are talking about other sellers who are using manufacturers as something that not feels handmade, the examples I see them pointing to are actually often sellers who are using simple assembly, which is something that has always been allowed on Etsy. Um, look, we don't want to be the creativity police, and we don't want to tell you how many steps have to be in your process for something to be considered art. But that means that there's going to be a range of craftsmanship in the marketplace. Um, our observation is that artisans really continue to develop their craft as they grow, on the, grow in their business and on Etsy. And we've always really believed in making the marketplace accessible to makers at all stages, stages of their creative process. And I feel like the, this democratic ethos of Etsy has likely made entrepreneurship accessible to many women who would otherwise not have had that opportunity. So here's another place where the whole thing gets really challenging. And I'm, 
I'm bringing this up because it gives you a sense of the complexity of the issues around this and, and just to give you a sense of what goes on inside our heads as we think and talk about this constantly. Like, let's use the jeweler scenario because it's a common one. Say you have a jeweler who makes her own designs in wax, uses a caster for production, and then does all the finishing work herself. Or a seller who designs her own pendants, uses a manufacturer to produce the components she's designed, and then assembles them herself. Are those items less handmade than someone who purchases existing pre-made craft supplies and assembles them into her own creation? I feel like every maker's process is so unique to them and we have so many types of items and production methods that it just feels impossible to find an answer that's going to feel satisfying or clean to everyone. Um, so that's sort of one, one of the reasons we haven't done this. The second one, just on a separate note, one thing that has always given me a lot of pause about separate categories is that we'd really be giving unfair advantage to a relatively small group of sellers. So far, we've only approved around 5,000 designers to work with manufacturers, and we'd essentially be putting those sellers in their own category where there was much less competition. And I just can't imagine that would feel great for handmade sellers who would be in a much larger, more saturated category. Right. And that was something that I really didn't understand until I spoke with you. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that, that is an important thing to bring up. Um, and uh, I like your your note about not trying to be the creativity police. Um, and uh, that that's hard. That's a really yeah. hard spot to be in. It's an impossible spot, I would say. It is in. an impossible spot. <laughs> it is. And you just don't want to get mired in there. Um, right. And so you have to sort of decide, well, where are we going to fall? Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the line between handmade and manufactured, as we said, is really tricky in some cases. So um, here are a couple of questions, some ideas that people um, gave me as we were gathering ideas about um, to ask you questions to ask you uh, in this podcast. So if I buy a few dozen American apparel t-shirts and I applique on them, are they manufactured since I didn't sew the shirts? And what if I have my drawings printed, as you said, on stationery or on calendars by a print shop near my house? Is that print shop my manufacturing partner? And finally, if I import factory knit leg warmers from an overseas supplier and then I add a bow, a button, or lace, where does that fall? It's a great question, Abby. Um, you know, and going to what Heather said, this isn't really a clear line for the most case. Uh, what, you're, what you're getting to is the fact that the overall story of how something is made is nuanced and often involves several steps and several people. Um, we know that some sellers will make by themselves each and every component of their items, shearing the per proverbial sheep and all, um, and some will not. Some will buy American Apparel t-shirts, for example, and applique. And there's just a huge spectrum there with a variety of creative choices and skills that can come to bear. And we want to honor all of that and really provide various tools for telling that story. Um, in terms of the examples you're describing, it's hard to say case by case because we really do look at the seller's process holistically, for example, when we're, when we're reviewing uh, outside manufacturing applications. Um, but from a creative perspective, a seller needs to demonstrate authorship in the creation of their items to be able to sell that as handmade. And when it comes to outside manufacturing, if they're designing an item or component of their item and having it made to their specifications by someone else outside of their Etsy shop, in other words, engaging directly with a the manufacturer, they should apply for outside manufacturing. So, you know, that manufacturer can be a person of one outside of the shop. 
And if that relationship is approved, uh, those manufacturers will appear in a separate section for manufacturers below the shop members. The idea here is that there's more transparency and more highlighting of the people and the relationships that went um, behind that item. Okay, I have one other um, instance that I, uh, I've sure. thought of. So um, I self-publish my own PDF uh, sewing patterns that I sell in mm-hmm. my Etsy shop, but I have also written three books with big um, publishers, you know, national, international publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if my publisher were to break apart my book and sell individual chapters as PDFs in their own Etsy shop that my publishing house opens. Is that considered okay? Is that a manufacturing partner? I mean, how is, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're touching on two things. I wanted to talk about the the printing example that you brought up before, because it obviously comes kind of to this as well. You know, you gave a few examples. um, And I think the printing one is something that people often don't think of as manufacturing. It was something that was allowed on Etsy before, and we really tried to add more transparency there and really honor the making work that those businesses do. I mean, printing is such a part of the, the story of manufacturing in America. Um, I think publishing could go to that as well. I think the example you gave there is a little bit more complicated um, because if someone wanted to sell those items in their shop, they would need to just start to um, demonstrate authorship for those items. Um, and you know, I don't know your specific case, but that sounds like something that would need to be to be teased out. Um, some of the other examples you mentioned are really, you know, cases of people working with suppliers of ready-made goods, um, which is something that, you know, a number of creatives do. And we don't have a way to showcase that, um, to showcase suppliers as a separate section in the Etsy shop, but we do encourage sellers to tell that story in their about page. They would not need to apply for outside manufacturing to disclose, you know, ready-made supplies, um, but many sellers do make very intentional choices about who they who they choose to buy supplies from. and. Um, yeah, that's another way that they could kind of describe the, the making process. Okay. All right. I does, think that, does that answer? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it does also touch on the complexity of what, of what this all is about. Um, it is not cut and dry and it is difficult to determine. Some cases seem more clear than others for sure. Um, but each case is really different in, in very individual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Stephanie, I'd like to hear more about the actual process of reviewing a seller's application to work mm-hmm. with a manufacturing partner. So as you said, we have 5,000 sellers who've been approved for outside manufacturing, and 85% of those relationships are between sellers and manufacturers that are in the same country. So are you inspecting these factories, or are you trusting that to the maker and is it okay if the partners aren't in the same country? So like, here was an example that I was thinking about. Um, I design stuffed animals and I live in Boston. So if I have one of my designs, you know, I make the pattern and I have it manufactured in a factory in India, is that okay? And is there a limit to how many I can order? Um, I know having looked into doing this several years ago that most factories uh, have a 10,000 unit minimum if I'm going to have my design manufactured in an overseas factory. So is that too many units? And then once my stuffed animals arrive um, in the United States, I'm not going to be able to store 10,000 units in my house. So I'm going to need to hire a distributor who is going to hold them and distribute them to stores for me or fulfill my Etsy orders and drop ship them. And is that okay? So like to what degree... Do I need to be involved for those things to still 
sort of be suitable for the site? Right. Yeah, a number of really great questions there. Um, I'll try to, to cover them all. Um, so in terms of reviewing a seller's application, we have a great team. Um, we, we call the people that are uh, working on this process maker specialists, and really they have very deep backgrounds in production, um, everyone on the team, and they really work with sellers directly as other makers to really understand um, the degree of involvement that they have in, in the process behind their items. And we look at those applications really holistically. Um, it's kind of an exchange. You know, sellers fill out a variety of details about their business, but there's often a back and forth after that. Um, our team's looking for three things. Uh, authorship, the creation of the item begins with a designer, and that um, you know, designers will, will list the various steps of the pre-production process and document it with images. And um, responsibility, that the, that the um, designer is invested and knowledgeable about the production of her items so that they're working with the manufacturer closely and they can describe that relationship, they can name that relationship, um, they can describe how, how their items are being produced and kind of the people and process behind that. Um, and transparency, that the designer honestly and accurately represents herself in the application, is willing to disclose certain details um, to us privately as well as, well as to buyers um, if that application is approved. So, you know, it's okay if partners aren't in the same country. That's another question that you had. Um, you can see from the stat that there are many cases um, where people are, are working with um, partners in different countries. It just turns out it wasn't the majority, um, which was something that actually surprised me as well. I didn't expect that number to be so high or, you know, just didn't quite know what to expect. Um, the point in either case across proximity or distance is that there's a relationship there. And, you know, relationships... As we all know, business relationships can vary by the industry and really um, be very personal to the, to the businesses involved. Um, some sellers and manufacturers can form really strong relationships across distance. Uh, we have cases of people that will go for months to another country and really spend hands-on time with, with their manufacturer and then go back to their home base. Um, in other cases, people will choose to work much closer to home um, because it, that's their values to work locally or to produce in their own country, or just because you know it's it can be more practical in some instances to find the right person nearby or to kind of maintain that relationship, especially if you want to go by and visit often. Um, and I would say similarly on size, we have we have found that small designers and small manufacturers tend to choose to work with each other. It's just not as common for small designers and large manufacturers to choose to work with each other. Um, one of the things we're really excited about with Etsy Manufacturing, which you'll probably ask some questions about later, is really the opportunity to connect Etsy sellers with manufacturers who are open to working with small and emerging designers who don't, for example, have minimum orders of 10,000 or even a fraction of that. Um, in a survey we did with sellers last year, we learned that a significant chunk of the sellers that we interviewed were working with manufacturers with very low minimum quantities. Uh, however, we also heard that other sellers considering manufacturing struggled to find those manufacturers. So this is something we really want to make more accessible for sellers um, if it's an option they're considering. And in terms of the, the question of drop shipping, Etsy sellers are allowed to drop ship and it's really up to the manufacturers if they'd like to offer this service and that may be something that sellers um, use as they're evaluating who they'd like to work with. Abby, I'd like to add just one thing to this. Um, you know, just to your question about India, 
if you could demonstrate everything Stephanie's talking about, and, and the outside manufacturing application process is a rigorous process um, with a manufacturer in India, then yes, sure. But you know what we've been finding is that Etsy sellers tend to find it a little more challenging to form the kind of relationship they want with someone who lives far away from them. Um, you know, when we talk to sellers about what they're looking for, they always talk about trust and relationship and not about price. Um, but that, but that, that trust is there and, you know, really who are they going to help like trust to help produce this thing that they love, that they designed mm -hmm. themselves. It's just so important. Um, I, I met this seller who, um, talked about getting to a place where she had to get help to produce a huge wholesale order. She designs pillows and she talked about, you know, spending some time like asking around, getting names, finally getting the name of a seamstress who was a couple of towns over and she drove over, spent a day with her and they sewed side by side making pillows together. And these are the kinds of partnerships that we're hearing about. You know, a couple of years ago, I heard Alice Waters speak and she said something that really reminded me of this and what we're seeing. She said, I didn't start out being about organic farmers. I was looking for taste and that led me to the organic farmer. And I think of the same thing for our sellers um, with who they choose to partner with. They're looking for craftsmanship and trust, which is tending to lead them to small scale and more local. Right. But in the end, right, no matter what rule and inten what intention is behind a rule, people are going to push the rule. I mean, that's just the way humanity works, right? People are always going to say, well, you know, yes, the intention behind this might be that I find somebody locally, that we work side by side, that I know them for years, et cetera, and so forth. But if in fact you know, the, this is a possibility to have my item manufactured, get 10,000 units, have it drop shipped. Um, and, you know, if that is a possibility, then there are going to be people who will push, right? Yeah. Who will, who will try to go as far as it, it can go. Of course. Um, and it yeah. sounds as though those people would still be allowed. I mean, if they were able to say, yes, I have this contact in my factory in India, I, you know, the factory was recommended to me by somebody else I know who's done this in the past and it's a great factory and I know, you know, this is my contact there and she and I have worked back and forth on my prototypes, my samples. It's taken a year to get this into production and now I have one I'm, I'm satisfied with. You know, I mean, this is how, for example, Crate and Barrel, if I have my uh, ornament, uh, they license it from me goes back and forth. I get the prototype. I approve the prototype. And then they mass manufacture and sell in crate and barrel stores all over the world. So, um, you know, if I if I go back and forth and I develop a relationship with my, my uh, factory representative in India, I could, in fact, do this. Yeah, I mean, I can touch a little bit on that. Um, I think so, the example that you're giving of that long distance relationship and having this kind of factory representative Often what we're asking is, is much more deep than that, um, really asking people to describe how actually are their items being produced, uh, what is the point of production, how is it working, who are the people involved, um, and in those kind of more remote situations where someone may have been loosely put in touch with somebody or may even be working with kind of a, a fixer, um, it's, it's often hard for those cases to pass. Okay. All right. So I think that that was important to clarify. And I want to say to you one thing, Abby, like there will always be people who try to push boundaries or try to get into the marketplace. And, you know, we really, you know, I, I want to point everybody toward the transparency report that shows, you know, we closed 168,000 shops last year. This is for non-IP violations, people who were doing things that were outside our policies. And so, so, you know, we, 
we have really focused a ton of energy and internal resources on enforcement of our policies, but we want to create guidelines for our site that actually enable and empower our sellers and focus our efforts more on enforcement of people who don't honor the spirit of those guidelines rather mm -hmm. than create policies that keep good sellers from being able to grow in responsible ways. Because at the end of the day, we really do believe in our sellers. Like the vast majority of our sellers want to grow in good ways. And we're, we feel like it's our job to be here to enable that. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like if you're a woman and you're an artist, like you have enough in the world telling you why you can't be successful. Like we don't want to add to that. We want to enable and empower people. And, and yes, we also want to enforce on the people who are, are trying to get into our marketplace who shouldn't be there. Right. And I think, I think um, some sellers would say, okay, that sounds well and good. Um, but what about the people who, um, who still make everything by hand? In other words, who don't want to partner with a manufacturer, who don't want to grow in that way, who still want to be a sole um, proprietor, a one-person uh, business, and create each and every product on their own, in their home studio, by themselves, and now some, in some way feel like, my goodness, I'm going to have to compete with these people who, you know, have all of this help, um, and how can I compete with that? So I guess one question would be like, what would be a good response to that seller? And before Heather answers that question, I want to pause for a minute to talk with our sponsor. I'm Rachel Gander, and my business is Imagine Now. When you talk to your kids um, and you tell them a little bit, I'm sure, day to day about what you do, what, do you, what is it that they think that Mommy's Day looks like? <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think that it's not all that inaccurate, but I think they think I stand in the garage all day and cut fabric. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> And that's basically what you off. do. Yeah. <laughs> when they leave for school and they come home from school and you're still standing in the garage, they're like, okay, that's what mommy does. Yeah. I think they literally think that's like, I don't move all day. Yeah. <laughs> it's too funny. <laughs> do you want to tell me a little bit about um, how you started Imagine Outs and sort of how it's grown over time? It literally started because I was at Quilt Market and I saw some Japanese cotton lawn and I just like bought five bolts of it. And then I was afraid to even, I, I mentioned it in passing, I guess, to my husband. And he was like, what? And then it just kind of was like, oh, well, we'll see if that works. And it just went from there. Wow. And now about how many bolts do you think you might have at this moment in time? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I almost try not to count because it's scary, but I would say over a hundred. Wow. That's amazing. So no wonder you're in your garage all day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I can no longer park my car in the garage permanently, but hundreds of bolts of fabric is a pretty good trade-off. Visit imaginats.com to see all that fabric that Rachel is talking about and patterns as well. And now back to my chat with Heather and Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the way we always look at this and, and I mean, the way we always talk about this behind the scenes at Etsy is there is no single way to be successful on Etsy. We know that the vast majority of our sellers don't want to grow beyond a size that they can handle themselves. And we're totally supportive of that. Like, this isn't for everyone. Not everyone wants or needs this. Maybe some people need this seasonally during particularly busy times. Other people don't need it at all. We feel like there's space in here for everyone. And we're, we're really thinking about sellers who are 
like the sellers that are being approved for this are being like are working in small and responsible ways are not mass producing things that they want to move into the marketplace so you know we feel like there's room in our marketplace for all these things but but single business operators are the core of Etsy and that's not going to that's not changing and we don't want that to change we're just trying to make it possible for people to grow in whatever way they want to in ways that are good and I think it's also important to point out from my own research and trying to expand in different ways over the years that there are significant costs in hiring help. Um, there are significant costs in growing. And mm-hmm. so even though it might seem, well, I'm going to have manufacturing help, which means I'm going to have all of these products that are going to be, you know, $5 now. That is not the case. Um, it, in fact, your cost can increase um, the cost of each item when you choose to hire help because there's so many costs involved right. um, in that. And so it doesn't necessarily reduce the price of your final item. Actually, the feedback that we've gotten from manufacturers is that many of our sellers would have to raise their prices to get I would, manufacturing yes. assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing that we see um, behind the scenes, for example, in trust and safety, is that we see sellers who've had cases filed against them because they've gotten a large order or they're overwhelmed. Um, you know, if you make um, Halloween costumes, this is a particularly busy time of year, and start to get behind. And, and so we see that happening when they start to get cases filed against them. And we try to do everything we can to help sellers dig out, like, put your shop in vacation mode. Let's make a plan. How can we get back on track? But often it's just because they need a little extra help. And, you know, on a personal level, I find it really heartbreaking when we see good sellers struggling and there's, you know, we wish that we could point them in the direction of where they could source extra help to get them past this moment in their business. And we just haven't had a resource for that. And, you know, it's a good thing when business grows to the point when you you have more orders and you need help. And we don't want that to be a moment that actually breaks the business and, and, keep someone from being able to continue growing that. Okay, super. So a few days ago, you announced a new initiative. We've touched on it briefly, but we want to talk about it more now. Um, it's called Manufacturing at Etsy. And I'd love it if you could explain what this is and why you thought it was something that Etsy should take on. Sure. So yeah, Etsy Manufacturing um, is, a new man- is a new marketplace. Um, and the goal is to help designers and manufacturers build responsible partnerships. And we just launched it, um, as you mentioned, we launched uh, manufacturer onboarding on Monday. And we're expecting to open this up for designers uh, to actually connect with manufacturers later this year. So, you know, at Etsy, we strive to empower our sellers to start, grow, and enjoy their creative businesses on their own terms. And, you know, over the years, we've really heard from sellers that they need help scaling, um, which was, you know, an impetus for, for creating this. Um, They may need help scaling to meet growing demand, to explore new product lines, or to meet other business goals, such as selling wholesale. And, you know, as Heather mentions, while not every Etsy designer wants or needs outside manufacturing help, many do. And it's something that we heard from sellers directly as we interviewed them, and we piloted new types of education and resources. Finding the right manufacturer is a hard thing to do. You mentioned this yourself, and, you know, the industry hasn't always been built to make this easy and accessible. Um, If manufacturing is a barrier between a seller and their business goals, we want to help alleviate that as we've tried to do in general. Um, On the other hand, there's an opportunity here to bring really new energy to the manufacturing industry. The industry is changing and I think Etsy sellers are actually really at the forefront of this. In our research with manufacturers, many told us the number of inquiries they're getting from small designers is on the rise. 
And you know, these businesses often look similar. I mean, actually, an Etsy seller can apply to be a manufacturer on Etsy manufacturing. Um, but other other manufacturers can be very similar to to Etsy sellers in, in terms of being small small businesses who care about their communities and the quality of what they're producing. And we really hope that Etsy manufacturing will allow these relationships to be fostered and allow manufacturers to to easily build high quality profiles where they can showcase you know more of the human nature behind their work and their business as well as their unique experiences and expertise. And so down the line, this matchmaking between Etsy sellers and manufacturers, that will be something that Etsy charges for down the line. Yeah, we're still figuring out the business model, but in the in the near term, this would be a free service. Okay. okay, yeah. And I wanted to mention that um, I think because I've been blogging for a long time, a lot of people find me who want to have um, designs manufactured overseas, mm. especially stuffed animals. Um, they've written a book, for example, and they've written a children's book, and there's a cute little owl who's the main character. They'd like to have that owl as a stuffed animal manufactured overseas. And so they are contacting me both to ask whether I'll design the owl uh, sewing pattern mm. and also if I know of a factory that will make it for them because they've contacted factories and um, the minimum order is 10,000 uh, items and they can't, they can't afford it. They don't want that many. Um, and then there's a language barrier as well and a lot of wait time because uh, the item's going overseas and coming back and then the prototype comes back months later and it's wrong. And so it's back and forth and back and forth and it's very difficult. And so they're asking me, where can I get this manufactured, uh, you know, more locally at a smaller scale, um, you know, and they're willing to pay for it. And I don't have any answers. And so to me, this is a resource for me to refer people to, to say, here's a list, you know, maybe you can find somebody here um, who could do this for you locally. Yeah. Right. And Abby, so in the, in the initial stage, you might've read this as well, but just for your listeners, um, we're only accepting applications from manufacturers in the U.S. and Canada, um, so that will be kind of the the pool for the beta. Okay, okay, that's good to know. Um, okay, great. So, as, yeah, as well as in four categories, I should mention the categories are um, apparel and textiles. So that would include cut and sew, and maybe some of the the types of work that that you would source, um, jewelry and metalworking, new machines, and printing. Okay. Oh, neat. So what is new machines? That can include something like 3D printing, laser cutting, milling. Okay. And printing is going to be like people who create art prints and that sort of thing? Yeah, it can be art prints. It could be G-clay. It could be screen printing. Um, you know, anything that's that's really printing oriented on, on fabrics, on um, hard goods, on paper. Yeah. So to me, this opens up a whole new area of, um, of possibility. Uh, I know from talking, I had Rebecca Rinquist, who's an embroiderer on my show. She has an Etsy shop mm-hmm. called Dropcloth. And one of the things she said was that when she, for a long time, she was screen printing her samplers. She makes embroidery samplers. And so she was screen printing them herself. And mm-hmm. um, she really wanted to hang on to that, but it just got to be too much. So she found a local screen printer who could screen print the samplers on the cloth for her. She still cuts mm-hmm. and packages and everything else herself. Once she was able to find that person, 
person to work with, that outside shop to work with, um, she was able to do so much more. And she felt so relieved, not only because she could finally Mm. design new things, but it like freed her up in every possible way. And I think that relationship is the kind that you're looking for most. But finding a local screen printer, I'm like, well, how would I even find that person? So this is a really, I mean, it's exciting to think like I would be able to find somebody who could do some of this for me and maybe I could develop new products now, you know, like there's a Mm -hmm. lot of possibility. And that's exactly how we think of it. Because I think, I think sometimes when there are conversations in our community about people who use manufacturing, there's the assumption that it's just about being big and having a huge business. But sometimes it's just about um, getting help with a part of the process that you find tedious, or you want to focus on design and other parts of your creative process and not just on every part of the production. And so people just use this in a variety of different ways to really, you know, make their lives better. And, and, you know, as you say, like continuing to develop new products and, and, you know, just being able to focus on the aspect of your work that you love the most. Yeah. I have another friend in Providence who sells on Etsy as well. And she makes kits for uh, stuffed animals, little tiny felt stuffed animals. And she gets all the felt pre-cut at the factory. So that when it comes to her, it's in these long, I've been to her studio. It's in these really long strips. They're like stacks of strips. And she Uh just cuts the strip once to make it into a small rectangle instead of having sheet, like really big bolts of felt and having to cut it all down herself. And for her, having the factory pre-cut the felt or like pre-measure the embroidery floss was like a huge, huge benefit. Right. And and we're hoping that, you know, SE Manufacturing will just make it possible for people who need any part of that production process to just, you know, go on there and find people that, that feel values aligned for you, that feel like meet the criteria of what you're looking for and want to work with, with small designers and Etsy sellers. So you don't have to go through that labyrinthian, very opaque process of, you know, sending out emails to factories you've never seen, but you actually can see faces and have conversations Mm -hmm. with people and and just find exactly what you're looking for that would help you. Yeah. And the other part of this is that people are very hesitant to share their sources and rightly so because it takes a really long time and so Mm -hmm. much work to find the right factory to do X, Y, and Z for you or the right screen printer to do X, Y, and Z for you. And then when some random person emails you out of the blue, it's like, hey, I like your screen prints. Where do you get them done? I want to get mine done too. It's like, "Mm, do I want to share? So I, I want to make it clear too that you are not sharing sources of manufacturers that people have filled out in their applications to be to get manufacturing partners you're not like taking those lists and then like putting them up or something definitely definitely not um this is something that we take extremely seriously um actually when we had originally um thought of the format of the application and the transparency around manufacturers we we had considered, you know, making it that people would list the manufacturer's name on the profile. And something that we heard when we talked to designers was really what you just mentioned, that, you know, people do work very, very hard to develop these relationships. And some really want to bring that business to to their manufacturer, new business to their manufacturer. But in other cases, it's very much a trade secret. So we decided that um, we would make it optional for people to actually list the name of their manufacturer publicly, they do have to list a description of the type of business they work with. So they may list local seamstresses, but not the name of the of the actual business, and they have to list the location as well. And the applications themselves are are just for the purpose of review. Um, they were not a source of of data for for Etsy manufacturing. Okay. 
and we're hoping that in the world of the future that we we like to move toward that there there's there's like this whole process is so transparent that it will be easy to share sources because there will be so easy to find good ones but we're not there yet we really want to respect um like privacy for our sellers and part of making manufacturing come back to life again within the united states and probably in canada as well is that there's enough business to support um, a factory to support a screen printer to support you know these sorts of manufacturing businesses and so in order for there to be enough business we all need to know who they are so we can reach out to them and hire them and if we all keep them secret there's no way they're going to thrive right so yeah, I, think I mean that's an, that's an individual choice for each business in terms of their you know their um the way they represent that on the about page and their outside manufacturing application we definitely respect that um, but we're also excited for manufacturers to come um, to this platform and really be able to be more transparent about what they do and, and hopefully attract the right, the right kinds of designers for their business. Okay. I want to turn to intellectual property because I think that's another area of concern for many in the Etsy community. So as a company, you make the rules for how the site runs. And right now, the rules state that you can't remove IP infringement unless you receive a proper takedown notice from the IP rights holder. So why not establish a stricter policy? Why not allow users, for example, to flag potentially problematic content for further review? I know you have a policy against products that glorify hate or violence, and I wonder if you cons you've considered instituting a stricter policy against intellectual property theft. So listen, intellectual property is a really complex area of the law that whole court cases hinge on and people spend their whole careers understanding. And I'm not an IP lawyer, <laughs> but I will say, you know, Etsy's an open marketplace and it's really impossible for an outside observer to tell if an item's infringing. That's part of why it makes it difficult to actually flag those items. Um, the only person who's really authorized to act on behalf of that and who has the background information necessary to decide is actually the intellectual property holder. Um, to the untrained eye material on Etsy, like fan art may appear problematic when in reality, the brand itself may continue the use to be fair and legal. Um, you know, each IP holder gets to decide how to enforce its intellectual property rights. And we don't get in the middle of that legally since we're not the IP holder. Um, I'll give you some concrete examples of how this may manifest. So, um, we were contacted by, or no, I shouldn't say, it was an example would be a lawyer who uh, was representing a longstanding children's show and contacted Etsy, um, requested that we remove a handful of items. And she looked at all the items and noticed that, you know, some of them made reference to the brand, but only a few could damage the brand's reputation. So those were infringement and those were removed. Others were unauthorized, but they were considered fan art and they would continue to be sold. And then others were over 20 years old, which were vintage and allowed to be resold. So it just, it gets really complicated. Um, you know, again, if we sort of point back to the transparency report, we, we took action in 2014 on, on nearly 7,000 properly submitted takedown notices and we disabled 176,000 listings. And that was from about 40, 2,000 sellers. And so it's one half of 1% of listings were affected by this. Um, and we also closed 4,000 shops who had repeat violations. I mean, look, these are the challenges of an open marketplace. We want to be accessible and we value cr free expression. 
Um, but we also want to honor intellectual property rights. We think that's important. And so that's how we've arrived where we have now. We're really proud of the transparency report and I hope that it gives our community more visibility into how we deal with these things. Okay. Um, let's turn to another hot button issue with sellers, which is dissent. Yes. Um, I think that we should start with talking about the Etsy forums and what's happened there historically when sellers have expressed frustration or anger with Etsy's policies. And maybe you can flesh out that history and then talk about whether there was a decision at some point to allow more varied viewpoints in the forums in order to promote a healthier environment. Do you want to kind of go go into that for a little sure. bit? Sure. Well, I'd love to talk about this. And Abby, you know, I read the forums every single day and I, I love it. Um, and so, you know, first of all, I'd say if you look at the forums, there is definitely a lot of criticism of Etsy in the forums a lot. So at any given moment, you can see that. And there's there's a tremendous amount of um, positive and negative feelings about Etsy. And um, I think... I hope and think that people may have noticed a change in our forums over the last number of years, but we've been doing those changes pretty slowly. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of context on how we got here. Um, so I'm going to probably give a little bit more background than you want, but for those of you who nerd out on this, like me, you might, you might appreciate some of this. So remember a number of years ago, Etsy was actually going to move all of the forums conversation into teams instead of one big forum. And then the forums community understandably got quite upset. So the decision was reversed, but the forums were just sort of, um, the only thing left in the forums was business topics. And so all the sort of chatter and more community conversation was happening in teams. Um, and the, you know, the, um, you had to really just talk about your business and not have chit chat or whatever. And so I think, I think the forums got fairly restrictive at that point. Um, and I wasn't here at Etsy at that time. So I'm just sharing the history as I've heard it. But really, you know, over the last few years, we've tried to make a lot of changes in the forums. And uh, first, we brought back promos and chit chat. Um, I, you know, frankly, considering the fact that the vast majority of our sellers are solo entrepreneurs and working alone, it's crazy to not let people talk about whatever they want to. I mean, this is the equivalent of having coworkers to talk to and, and you know, ways to, to be social during the day when you're, you're working so hard. Um, we also took a look at some of the forum meetings and decided to put an appeals process in place. Um, that, and we put that in place site-wide, actually, as a check and balance for Etsy. Um, but when we did that uh, appeals process in the forums, we said to people, like, if you disagree with a previous decision we've made about you in the forums, you can appeal it to Etsy and we'll take a look at it again with fresh eyes. And we ended up overturning half of the past forums decisions that we'd ever made to give people a fair shot. Um, and now, you know, I feel like we're in a really different place with community moderation. Um, the forums team only tries to get involved when a specific seller or an admin is being called out publicly. We just do this because we want people to feel safe in the forums. I used to constantly get convos from people who were like, I can't post this in the forums because I'm too scared. And, you know, we don't want a place where people feel like that or that they're going to get sort of called out publicly or targeted. So, for example, you can talk about anything you don't like on Etsy, but when you talk about a particular person doing that thing and point to them, that's when we close the thread because, you know, again, we, we want people to feel safe. Um, we've also just done a lot of work behind the scenes to make the forums feel more enjoyable. And 
you know, when you talk about community moderation, there's a balance. You want to be involved enough so that you make it safe for people to express a wide variety of opinions without fear of retribution. Um, and that, you know, that people who are quiet or personalities also feel like they can express themselves. But you also don't want to go too far and be draconian with rules. And I feel like, you know, historically, the forums have gone too far in one direction or another. But I feel like it's in a really balanced place now, a pretty balanced place. Um, you know, I like that, for example, yesterday, um, people were discussing the manufacturing marketplace and there was a difference of opinion on both sides, but it didn't get out of control and people were able to just, you know, speak what I, in what I felt like was a, a truthful and balanced way with each other and disagree. Um, and, you know, we love that the Etsy community has so much to say, is so passionate, like we, we just wouldn't want it to be otherwise. We want to nurture that. Okay. Um, and let's talk a little bit now about the, um, the web interface and how, sure. how that has changed. And, um, I think there's, you know, different issues that sellers experience on the web, uh, like when they're using the Etsy site itself. So as it stands now, Etsy sellers can't hyperlink their websites from their Etsy shop. So I have my own website, for example, and I have an Etsy shop. And although I can list the URL, I can't make that URL a clickable link. So mm -hmm. it will immediately bring people to my blog, for example, to learn more about me there. Um, they would have to copy and paste that into their browser. So why is that? And what does what Etsy allows compare like, how does that compare to what other online marketplaces are allowing as far as being able to link out? This is a good question. Um, so you can actually link to your own website from your about page, as well as, you know, to your blog, social accounts, and so forth. Um, I, but you're right, you can't currently hyperlink from the shop announcement. Um, so really, you, you know, we have changed our policy around this. We used to not allow people to post um, like redirect off the site from their shop announcement. And we changed that policy. People should be able to do that. And we just haven't updated the site yet to reflect that. Um, so that's, that's allowed and the hyperlink's just not there. And I suspect it's something that's about to happen in the very near future because we really do want buyers to have the full story behind your shop, your business, your process. And, and so any additional color we can add for that for them is, is like helpful. And um, I can't, I can't um, speak to every marketplace that's out there, but I do. I do feel like you know, we we like to do that, and we think it's a good thing. And I, I don't think that that most marketplaces do that to the extent that we do. Okay, so that's great news because it sounds as though it might be coming down the pipe soon that people will be able to connect directly with me on elsewhere online from my Etsy shop, which I, I believe it is safe to say that. Yes. Okay. I think that would be fantastic <laughs> yeah. news for those of us who have spent a long time building a web presence yeah. elsewhere as well. Sure. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So I've heard from many sellers who feel that the site is set up in such a way that customers are encouraged to search for and find the least expensive option when they're searching for an item. Um, mm -hmm. So some sellers feel that they have to compete for the lowest price in order to get the sale. And I wanted to know what you would say to those sellers. Um, you know, first of all, I'd say that when we survey buyers, price is not why most shoppers, why, why most buyers shop on Etsy. Buyers shop on Etsy because they want things they can't find anywhere else, period. 
Um, I also want to say that I think many of our sellers undercharge for their goods. And Abby, this may be a good topic for a future podcast. Um, but, you know, when we do education on pricing, we consistently encourage sellers to raise their prices. Um, you know, I've talked to Mike Grishover, who's our head of product, about about this topic. And, and you know, he, he says that the, the site is really set up to help buyers find exactly what they're looking for in a number of ways like search, browsing, favoriting, personalized recommendation, sharing. Everything we do is about helping buyers find exactly what they want. But you may notice that one thing we don't have on Etsy as compared to other shopping sites is we don't have a feature that's a price comparison tool because we actually don't want buyers to be focused on price. And um, we want them to be focused on other things. We want it to be about finding the perfect thing that is exactly what you're looking for about craftsmanship and about the seller behind the item. And we're really looking at actions like clicks and favorites from buyers to feed algorithms that help us define and figure out what kinds of categories and subcategories of items a shopper is looking for. So it's not about price, it's getting them to exactly that thing that they want. Um, and I, I could really sum up the work we do on the buyer side is that this science of matching the right buyer with the right seller and the right items. Um, you know, I, I think this is getting at that topic of like the, the tension between the individual and the collective of a large marketplace, because features like similar items are a place where this tension comes out on the seller side, because it can fe it, it feels like buyers are being directed away from you to other items. But a thing to remember is that buyers are also being directed to you. And so, again, if it's that science of getting buyers to the right place to discover the sellers who are most going to resonate for them, over time, we'll just work to continue to get better and better at this. And the better we are at it, the more sales that our sellers are going to make. Okay. Um, and over the last several years, the checkout process on Etsy has become more automated so that now instead of me sending a customer a convo saying, hey, your item shipped, they sent it out this morning, Etsy sends that as an automated email to my customer. And that means that as a seller, I have less contact with my customer, less sort of back and forth one-on-one. -on -one. And I wonder if you could flesh out why Etsy's put these various sort of automations in place that kind of take me out of the equation. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'm not sure that every single seller wants to have to send a convo after every purchase. So some of this is about, you know, making life easier for the seller. Um, but it's also about making the buyer experience easier on the buyer side. So anytime we make a change to a checkout flow or some kind of process, it's because we discovered that it's making some sort of disruption to a sale. And we do all these things to increase the odds you'll get more sales. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, even as we've made some of these automations to make the transaction flow smoother for buyers and sellers, we have also added a lot of personal touches to the process so the seller can really be present without having to send a convo every time. So examples of this would be, you know, the customizable shipping slips where you can add your banner and personalize the slip you put inside packages. I've already gotten a number of these. I think they're so great. Um, like adding more information about the seller onto the receipt after you get the purchase. So there's a map of the town. There's a picture of the item. There's a note from the seller. Um, you know, I've been shopping on Etsy for 10 years and I feel like it's really the best it's ever been, like easy to shop and convenient, but it also still has a personal feeling as a buyer when you make that purchase. And, and I still feel like I get a lot of, uh, a lot of sellers choose to send combos after the sale. Mm -hmm. I still feel like that happens a lot, but it's more of an optional thing. Okay. 
All right. I think that's important to know. So um, any final notes? Are there any sort of last things that you want to be sure that sellers hear from you um, about Etsy right now, uh, Etsy going forward? Wow, we said a lot. <laughs> we have said a lot. No, I, I just, I think that, um, you know, I just want our sellers to know that the, you know, we really take these things very seriously and we're, we're always thinking about the impact of any of these decisions on our community. And, and, you know, we really try to put a lot of thought into any sort of change that we make and, and spend a lot of time thinking about it and getting it right. We really do. We're not always perfect, but we do spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to how to do it in the best possible way. And if people want to follow up, they've listened to the show and they have specific things that they'd like to hear more about or questions. Um, how? What's the best way for them to get in touch with you guys? Send me a convo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, feel free to convo me. And if you have a, a, a question that's less um, specific to me, feel free to, to email outside manufacturing at etsy.com if you have a manufacturing related um, question. But this was just such a pleasure to, yeah, to chat absolutely. with you, Abby, and to have the chance to answer some of these tough questions. As Heather said, we do think very deeply about them and really love to hear sellers' questions. Okay, super. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to do this again at some point and kind of check back in because I think it is really helpful for people to hear directly from you guys and hear your voices and have some of their questions and ideas addressed directly. So this has been really nice for me as well. So thank you for, for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Apps podcast. Us too. Thank you so much, thank Abby. Thank you so much. Take care. And you've been listening to the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshinapps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. And thank you to Imagine Nats for sponsoring this episode. At Imagine Nats, you'll find modern sewing patterns that include clever details and practical techniques, plus fabrics for your garment sewing needs. Check the Imagine Nats blog daily for creative inspiration. Find it all at ImagineNats, that's G-N-A-T-S dot com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.